0: Matthew chapter 5, I want to speak to you uh, for the last session, and I'll be very honest. I don't think I really had it figured out uh, in my heart, in my spirit, why God put this message on my heart, and why, you know, just God orchestrated it, I believe, for me to present this as the last session. And I really, I figured it out. Look, this has been a marvelous conference. Unusually blessed, has it not? It really has. Well, if you want to say we've been on something like a Mount of Transfiguration, man, it's time to come down and, and you're going to run into the demon possessed boy when you come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. And, and, and I just, I just understood just as we were worshiping God before, I, it, but this is, this is to prepare you to come from this great season that God has given you just these few days for what you need, need to face going into ministry both immediately and in the coming months, I, th- I think God has given me a message to just sort of steal you, to, to stiffen your spine, to give you a little stronger backbone, because God wants you to take all that he's poured into you these days and go out and live it, no matter what the opposition. So the text I have for us right now is Matthew chapter 5, beginning of verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now this, of course, is part of the Sermon on the Mount. And we know that Jesus was many things in his earthly ministry. We know that he was a tremendous healer. We know that he was a tremendous performer of miracles. We know that he was a tremendous prophet. But more than anything, Jesus was a teacher and a preacher. His ministry is defined in the the most uh, narrow terms. as He went about the villages of Galilee preaching and teaching the kingdom of God. This is what he did. And a big part of that, I believe, is this message that we have in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, we have a radically different agenda than than what the people of Israel wanted to hear from the Messiah. They thought they had it all figured out, what the Messiah would do and, and the kind of a kingdom he would bring in. But Jesus came and through the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, he was correcting so many of their misunderstandings. What he does in the Sermon on the Mount is he expresses the spiritual implications for the rule of Jesus in our lives. That the Sermon on the Mount tells you what life looks like when Jesus is your Lord. Now it's true that Jesus spoke the Sermon on the Mount to his disciples. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 tells us that. Yet it seems that the people broadly also heard him, because by the end of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, verse 28, he's speaking more generally. Probably the idea, and I can't say this with certainty, but probably the idea is he's speaking to disciples, but disciples in the broader sense of those who will listen, those, those who are considering following, those who want to know more about who Jesus is. It can't really be proved. But sometimes I think that the Sermon on the Mount was sort of Jesus's standard sermon, that when he went about all the villages of Galilee and says that he preached to them the kingdom of God, I think much of it was themes from the Sermon on the Mount. Let me correct for you your misunderstandings of what the kingdom of God is all about. Let me explain to you what it is. And you know how he begins the Sermon on the Mount, right? He begins with that beautiful section of the Beatitudes. He describes the people of his kingdom. And they're radically different than the people of the world. The people described by the Beatitudes, they're poor in spirit. They're the mourners, the weak, they're those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They're the merciful, the pure in heart. They're the peacemakers. And I just want you to put in your mind the profile of that kind of person. What wonderful people. Wouldn't you love to have a congregation filled with people who are marked by the Beatitudes? I mean, this is, they're poor in spirit, they're meek, they're, they're, they're pure in heart, they, they hunger and thirst after righteousness, they're merciful. Aren't these the best people ever? Yet right after the Beatitudes, or actually at the closing, at the tail end of the Beatitudes, what does Jesus say? Hey, you wonderful people described by the Beatitudes, what should you expect from the world? That the world will love you? That the world will draw you close into its bosom and say, Oh, you're such wonderful people. No, people, you describe by the Beatitudes, the world's going to hate you. They're going to persecute you. You see, all the characters, traits that are described by the Beatitudes are not valued by our modern culture. We don't give awards to the most pure in heart. The people aren't interested in recognizing the person who's most poor in spirit. But even though our culture doesn't recognize these character traits, they describe the character of the people in God's kingdom. So how does Jesus begin? Look at it at verse 10 again. Read it there. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now notice here, the blessed ones are persecuted for two reasons. The first reason is given in verse 10. They are persecuted, notice, for righteousness' sake. Their righteous standard, their righteous life, that's why they're persecuted. The second reason is found in verse 11. Do you see it in verse 11? They're persecuted, Jesus said, for my sake. In other words, the sake of identifying themselves with Jesus and following Jesus. When you make yourself a partisan of Jesus, you should expect some persecution. Please notice, men. The people Jesus spoke about here in Matthew chapter 5 are not persecuted for their own stupidity, for their own carnality, for their own arrogance or fanaticism. Later on, Peter, who heard these words from the mouth of Jesus, Peter recognized that suffering might come to Christians for a reason other than their faithfulness to Jesus. He said it in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Let me read this to you. He says... But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, as a busybody in the affairs of other people. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Isn't that right along with what Jesus said? Yes, you're blessed if you're suffering for righteousness' sake. You're blessed if you're suffering for my sake, as Jesus said. And he points it out very clearly in verse 11. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. I want you to notice something carefully in verse 11. Men, think of those words. Jesus brought the arena of insults and spoken malice into the sphere of persecution. Look at, I'm going to read those words again and look at it carefully. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you. Do you understand what I'm getting at here? Jesus is saying that it's persecution for my sake when people revile you when they they lie about you for my sake. Now, this is not to say, and I want to be very careful with this. This is not to say that lies and evil spoken against us is the same as or as bad as being persecuted in your body or in your property. There is a dimension of honor and endurance that's associated with physical persecution or having your property confiscated or whatever for the sake of Jesus that's associated with those depths. And the Bible notes that. I still can't get over the words that Paul wrote in Galatians 6 17. You remember those words? Let me read them to you. From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Whoa. Do you grab what Paul's saying right there? Paul's saying, don't you mess with me. I've been persecuted for Jesus. There's just an element that Paul's body bore the marks of physical persecution. I understand that that is a different dimension. Having lies or evil spoken of you isn't the same as physical opposition or torture, but it is its own kind of attack. It is its own kind of persecution to endure. You see, evil... That's spoken against you won't leave physical scars, but it can leave some pretty deep wounds, can it not? And if you let the stress of lies against you eat you up, it won't be good for your body, but it's even worse for your soul. And here's the point, is that it didn't take long for these words of Jesus to ring true to his followers. From the very beginning, early Christians heard their enemies say all kinds of evil against them falsely for Jesus' sake. I was fascinated by the text that Don chose yesterday because it describes just exactly this dynamic. Acts chapter 14, verses 2 and 3. You remember it from yesterday. Let me just read it again to you. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poison their minds against the brethren you ever seen that you ever seen it in church life where minds are poisoned and stirred up against the brethren now i love paul's response Uh, the connection between verse 2 of Acts chapter 14 and verse 3 of Acts chapter 14 is wonderful let me start again at verse 2 but the unbelieving jews stirred up the gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren therefore they stayed there a long time speaking boldly in the lord isn't that tremendous? Paul and Barnabas are discussing it. You know, and, and Barnabas says, Paul, you should hear what they're saying about us. They're, they're saying this and that and all these terrible things about us. Their minds are being poisoned against us. And Paul says, well, that means we better stay here a good long time. Our tendency is to cut and run when such things are being said about us. No, no, no. This happened in the very beginning of the church, and they showed a Courage. But you know, if you pick up just about any good book about the history of Christianity and go to the section on persecution in the first few centuries of the church and look at the paragraphs, just scan over the paragraphs until they discuss the reasons why early Christians were persecuted or at least why the people in the Roman Empire thought that Christians were worthy of persecution. I mean, think about this, friends. You've got these Beatitudes kind of people, Poor in spirit, meek, peacemakers, all this different character. Why persecute them? Well, again, I took a quick look through Kenneth Scott Ladaret's work and Philip Schaff's works. And here's a list of what I found. These were the reasons why the Romans thought that Christians were worthy of persecution. Ready for this? Number one, they accused Christians of hostility to the emperors and conspiracy against the state. They accused Christians of incest. They accused Christians of cannibalism. They accused Christians of being atheists. They accused Christians of being, quote, haters of humanity. They accused Christians of being the reason why problems plagued the Roman Empire. Now, that list is very interesting for a lot of reasons, but especially for the twisted reasons behind those beliefs and those accusations. For example, do you know why they called Christians haters of humanity? Because the Christians didn't rush into the bloody gladiatorial games and cheer when men were cut in two, you know, in front of a public spectacle. Because Christians wouldn't join in to the same drunken orgies and parties that the entire Roman Empire seemed to be given over to. Because Christians said, no, thank you. We don't want anything to do with that. They said, well, you're haters of humanity. Now, here's what's fascinating about this. All of those accusations were lies. Every one of them. Christians were good citizens and they prayed for the emperor. Christians lived pure moral lives. Christians never practiced anything like cannibalism. Do you know why the accusation of cannibalism came against Christians? Because they celebrated the Lord's Supper. This is my body. This is my blood. And the Christians didn't believe in transubstantiation at all. But that was twisted by the wicked among the Romans. And they said, well, this is what it must be. They're cannibals. Furthest thing from the truth. Yet the accusation was laid against them. Christians were were certainly not atheists. And Christians loved others. And they showed it all the time. And Christians made the empire better, not worse. But despite all of that, the lies continued. They were commonly believed and Christians were persecuted because of it. Now the apologists of the early church did what they could to tell the truth. But to be honest, it was a losing public relations battle. Those lies were popularly believed. If you were to go around the Roman Empire, say about the year 200, and say, well tell me what you think about those Christians, many people, probably a statistical majority in the Roman Empire would say, well they're cannibals, aren't they? Well, they, they always talk about loving each other as brothers and sisters. Oh, that sounds like incest to me. On and on and on, the lies, the misrepresentations. Now, why do I bring this up? This, to me, seems particularly relevant to our day and age because many people today believe lies about Christians. They believe that Christians hate homosexuals. That's a lie. They believe that Christians hate women or are sexist. That's a lie. They believe that Christians are generally hateful or intolerant. These are lies about us that are popularly believed in the culture. I would venture to say that perhaps even statistical majorities believe these things, at least among some demographics... And perhaps many Christians believe this about the Christian community themselves. If you were to ask many Christians, especially Christian young people, they would agree with these lies. But I'll just tell you straight up. Just because people believe the lies doesn't mean they're true. Oh, I know what some people say. They'll say something like this. But, But I saw on CNN a North Carolina pastor who on a YouTube video, he preached that homosexuals should be rounded up and that we should get rid of them. By the way, that just did happen in the last day or two. CNN news, you know, blog, whatever. So what? There are millions of professed Christians in the United States. You can always find a few who say stupid and hateful things. You can always find a few who are rushing to put their stupid and hateful things on YouTube. So what? What? Those people need to repent and they need to stop shaming the name of Jesus. But they are strange, bizarre voices that don't represent most Christians at all. You know what it's like? It's like going out golfing, and you're a terrible golfer, and you score 130 for your round of golf. But in your 130 strokes, you hit the ball well twice. You say, Hey, I'm a good golfer, I hit the ball well twice. No, your two strokes were a tiny percentage of your entire golf game. You're a terrible golfer. (laughs) Listen, friends, in the same way, in the same way, a few bizarre hateful voices doesn't translate in the slightest way to the idea that Christians are, in fact, hateful people. I'll tell you why this is important to me. It's important to me because of the response that the Christian community often makes. And this is tied up in a a serious and solemn charge that I delivered to you, men. You see, in response to what the public often thinks of us, in response to the lies that they often say and believe about us, some Christians are determined to win the public relations battle by claiming the Bible approves of homosexual behavior. They think if we just do that, we'll get them on our side. Or how about this? If we erase the biblical roles of men and women, well, then they'll like us. Or if we deny hell, well, then they'll think we're really nice people. You know how the logic sometimes go. If we stop talking about hell, maybe they'll stop saying these things about us. Maybe they'll think we're likable people. And then we can lead them to Jesus. Does anybody really think it works that way? Uh, How about this? If we start drinking beer and alcohol, then the world won't say that we're uptight. Hey, you're cool, they'll say. And then we can lead them to Jesus. Man, it just doesn't work that way. Can you imagine the Christians of the early centuries saying something like this? Well, you know, lots of people say we practice cannibalism because we take communion together. We take the Lord's Supper together. Maybe we should stop doing it. Then they won't lie about us. It is unimaginable that they would do it, and neither should we. I guess at a core, men, my message is to you, they're going to lie about you. They're going to speak reviling words and all kinds of slander against you. Take it in stride and do the ministry that God has given you to do. But Because this whole public relations mentality, it's a losing battle. You will sell the birthright of biblical faithfulness for the stew of the world's applause. And even if you catch the world's applause for a moment, it won't last. They still won't like you. They still won't stop lying about you. Not if you're faithful to Jesus and to righteousness in any way. Look at how Jesus said that you should regard it when they lie about you. This this is crazy. Verse. Five to, well, I, respectfully, Lord, I, to my human wisdom, it's crazy. <laughs> Matthew five twelve. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Hey, I've got great news and people are lying about you like crazy. That's not good news. It seems to me like nothing but bad news. But what does Jesus tell us to do? Jesus meant it. and It may seem crazy to my human wisdom, but it's it's wise in the wisdom of God rejoice and be exceedingly glad. You know, you can translate that phrase rejoice and be exceedingly glad literally as something like leap for joy, jump for joy. Why? Well, really for two reasons. Because when they revile you and when they say all kinds of evil things against you for Jesus' sake, number one, you have great reward in heaven. But Lord, lots of people hate me on earth. You've got great reward in heaven. What are you playing for? Are you playing for earth's applause or for heaven's applause? That's one reason. You have great reward in heaven. Second reward, the prophets before you were also persecuted. Remember that. Remember that other people have gone before you and have endured much worse than your endurance. I'm speaking to a lot of people, so there's got to be more than just a few pastors here. You're suffering right now in your congregation because there's a big whispering campaign uh, uh, against you or against your family. They're backbiting you. They're, they're, they're reviling you. They're speaking all kinds of evil against you. They, they may try to put a Christian face on it, but it's just really stressing you out, getting you down. Pastor, just rejoice. Rejoice. And remember... Others have suffered far worse than you. I remember I remember reading the old Puritan commentator, John Trapp. I love some of these old men. I love how they point out some of these things that I might otherwise neglect. He, he named some men who did in fact rejoice and who really were exceedingly glad when they were persecuted. He spoke about a name named George Roper. George Roper came to the state leaping for joy, and he hugged the stake that he was going to be burned at as if it was his friend. Dr. Taylor, he leapt and he danced a little as he came to the place of execution. And when when he was asked how he was, he said this, Well, God be praised, good master sheriff. Never better, for now I'm almost home. I'm even at my father's house. And then Lawrence Sanders, with a smiling face, He embraced the stake of his execution and he kissed it saying, welcome the cross of Christ, welcome everlasting life. Now that's men. And I don't say that to minimize what it is that you're going through. I do just say it to put it in some perspective. If those men could do that in the face of real persecution... Can't we take the same attitude when the people around us uh, lie about us and revile us? We can get happy. We can smile. We can love them. We can tell them that Jesus loves them. It's a high call, but Jesus helping us, we can actually do it. Our persecution, it may not be much compared to others good man of God, if no one speaks evil of you, if no one reviles you, then how are these beatitudes true in your life? Now, there's an important point to come back to, and I don't want to neglect this at all, so please listen carefully. This applies to a particular kind of people. Look at it in verse 10. The people it applies to are People persecuted for righteousness' sake. If you're being persecuted because you're a jerk, you don't find shelter under this. Whatever pain you got to endure in ministry, why don't you take care to ensure that it's pain you endure for righteousness' sake? Or how about this? In verse 11, It applies when they say all kinds of evil against you falsely. Not when they say all kinds of evil against you truly. And that's why I say this, and I say it very seriously. I say it solemnly to you, brethren. If you are filled with hate, you need to repent. If you are one of those, what I consider to be statistical outliers, the Christians I know and mean, they love people who struggle with homosexuality. They love them knowing that, that we all struggle with sinful inclinations. I do. I trust you. The, now, the, the inclinations you struggle with may not be the same ones that I struggle with, may not be the same ones that another person struggles with. But what God calls us all to do is to deny our sinful inclinations, to put to death Adam, and to live for the glory of Jesus Christ. He requires that of all of us. And if your particular inclination is of a homosexual nature or some other sort of sin that's that's thought of as more notorious in the church, well, then you're, you're just in the same boat as us all. But if you are, if you are a man filled with hate, you need to repent if bad things people say about you or think about you are true, then you need to repent. Let's just get that clear and get it out of the way. But in the bigger picture, we need to understand that part of the Christian life is simply being misunderstood. This is one of the burdens that we have to face as followers of Jesus. It's amazing to think of all the ways and in all the manners that Jesus was misunderstood. You know, one of the first things we know about Jesus was that he was misunderstood. When Joseph and Mary left him uh, behind at Jerusalem, they didn't understand that he had to remain at the temple and be at his father's business. What did he have to tell his own mother and father? You don't understand me. Don't you understand? I have to be here about my father's business. He was misunderstood at a child. But even, even in the ultimate sense, they're on the cross. And I think about this often, how on the cross, one small and, if I could say, if you could even use such terminology, a relatively small aspect, but yet nevertheless, a legitimate aspect of Jesus' suffering on the cross was that he was misunderstood. Now, let me show this to you. Go to Matthew chapter 27. Verses 46 through 49. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. I'm not even going to enter into the depths of those verses. When we read sentences like that, we recognize that this is sort of take-your-shoes-off, holy-ground kind of territory. We recognize that as Jesus said those words, something happened between God the Father and God the Son on the cross that we can only faintly, as if in a mirror, understand. If If I were to go into more depth, I'd probably point out, as you well know, that Jesus here was quoting Psalm 22, referring, I believe, to not only the suffering of the Messiah, but also to his great exaltation. I would point out that Jesus didn't cry out, why has Judas betrayed me? That he didn't cry out, why did Peter forsake me? Here Jesus dealt with, only with his God and Father. I'd point out that at the same time, this is the only place in the Synoptic Gospels where Jesus addressed God without calling him Father. Simply, my God, my God. And that even though Jesus had known great pain and suffering, both physical and emotional, during his life, and up to this point during his ordeal on the cross, he had never known separation from his Father. And that I I believe that at this moment, a holy transaction took place. that, that, That God the Father regarded God the Son as if he were a sinner. As the Apostle Paul would so powerfully state it later on, he would say, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I'd point out that Jesus not only endured the withdrawal of the Father's fellowship, but also the actual outpouring of the wrath of the Father upon him as a substitute for sinful humanity. And that as horrible as all of this was, that it fulfilled the good and loving plan of God for our redemption. Therefore, Isaiah could say, in words I can barely comprehend, therefore, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. When you think about this holy moment on the cross, you understand that when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That that if the Father were to actually answer that question, because it was a question, was it not? That if the Father were to answer the question, it would go something like this, Because, my son, you chose to stand in the place of guilty sinners. Because, my son, because of your great love for fallen humanity... Because, my son, of the great reward, the redeemed, your bride that will be won through great sacrifice, that is why. That is why you endure that which you do not deserve on the cross. So without going into any of that, let me just notice this. That on the cross, and again... I feel funny making relative aspects of Jesus' suffering on the cross. But if you could, if, if it's possible to describe relative aspects of his suffering, this would be of a more minor nature. But one of the things that Jesus suffered on the cross is that when he cried out in the depths of his agony, nobody understood what he meant. There he is crying out. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And what did everybody say? Did they say, oh my, he's quoting Psalm 22. There's something holy and precious happening here. No, what did they say? They said, this man is calling for Elijah. Jesus was misunderstood and mocked to the bitter end. And these observers thought, well my, this is an interesting test case. Let's see if Elijah will really come down from heaven and, and visit him. And as Jesus hung on the cross, his listeners misunderstood him. They misunderstood him by taking the part for the whole. What did Jesus say? He said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. not only did they get the whole statement wrong, but all they heard was the first word, Eli. And they thought he was calling for Elijah. Jesus said a whole phrase, but they only listened to one word. And they got that one word wrong. By the way, this will never do for the follower of Jesus. We hear not only one word from Jesus, but we hear every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. But as Jesus says that, he's misunderstood, and he knew it. He knew it his whole whole ministry. Jesus knew what it was like to have his motives misunderstood. He healed people, and he healed others. And the religious leaders said that he did it by the devil. Isn't that amazing? He reached out to sinners and they called him a drunken glutton because of it. Now listen, the followers of Jesus, we need to understand that sometimes our motives are going to be misunderstood. Jesus knew what it was like to have his words misunderstood. What did he say? He said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. I probably have any no doubt that Jesus motioned towards his own body when he said that destroyed this temple and in 3 days I'll raise it up again still people insisted that he spoke of the temple that existed in Jerusalem another time when Lazarus was dead and he told others that Lazarus was sleeping they misunderstood they thought they meant that Lazarus was getting much needed rest sometimes we have our motives understood sometimes we have our words misunderstood Jesus even had his silence misunderstood. When he first appeared before Pilate, Pilate sent him off to Herod. And when Herod questioned Jesus, Jesus didn't say a word. Herod misunderstood the silence of Jesus. And he saw it as weakness, as powerlessness. But but Herod was as blind to the power and dignity in the silence of Jesus as anybody else was. The followers of Jesus, we also will have our silence misunderstood. Man, this is just it. As followers of Jesus, we need to understand we will be misunderstood. Our motives, our words, our silence. But it's just all part of the package, isn't it? Let me make something very clear. I don't want any of this, oh, poor me stuff. No, what we do is, is in the custom of those great martyrs, if there's anything, if there's a stake that we're going to be burned at, we're going to run up to it and kiss it. Oh, glorious cross. I know what you say. You say it isn't fair. I don't deserve this. Have we come back to that again? Have we come back to what we deserve? Is this what we come back to? Is this, is this the ground that we're going to approach God before on? What we deserve in ministry? Good luck with that. If there's a man who really wants to be judged in this room based on what he deserves in life and in ministry, God bless you. We're not even going to go there. But we understand. The world is going to misunderstand us. It's going to revile us. It's going to lie about us. It's going to falsely accuse us. What's our duty? Our duty is to ignore the lies Remain true to God and his word, to love them in return like crazy and to be about our father's business and to do it with joy. As I said before, none of this old poor me stuff. This is what we've signed on to with joy. And we realize it's just part of the price we get for the amazing privilege of serving our God. And I know, men, that sometimes it feels, sometimes it does feel like nothing is worth this. Have you felt like that in ministry? I have before. Nothing is worth, oh, Lord, nothing is worth this. I thank God that those times are relatively rare. Most of the time, it feels like I can't believe I get to do this. So we just put it all in perspective. But if the world hates us, and if it lies about us, So be it. But we should always live in such a way that shows that the actions or the accusations, I should say, against us are lies. Let us make that our solemn determination. And to never, never compromise the clear teaching of the word of God in order to curry favor with this world. Never. this is a dangerous thing going on in the body of Christ. This letting go of clear scriptural truth, hoping that they'll somehow like us. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice, And be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Father, bless these men as they go out. And I pray that you would equip them to do, Lord, as as we would say, to play the man. To rise up as, as not only strong and brave soldiers of Jesus Christ. But, Lord, it's not too much for us to ask that you would make us joyful soldiers of Jesus Christ. We don't want to poor mouth ourselves or our station or our miseries. We choose it all, Lord, to see it in the surpassing glory of what you did for us on the cross. And while we reckon with these things as men, we're determined to go forth in joy. We're determined to outlove those people who lie about us. And trust that even though we can't change them, you can. You can, Lord. You've turned more than one persecutor to your cause. And we pray that you do it again in greater measure. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your, um, your goodness to us. I, I'm astounded, Lord, by your goodness to us through this conference. Send us forth now to fulfill your purpose in our lives, in our families, in our ministries. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor David Guzik. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor David's teaching ministry by visiting EnduringWord.com.